0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio
1: app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, you're listening to Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're often led to believe that nature is dormant during winter. However, a hike through the woods, along a creek, or around the edge of a pond in January or February can reveal lots going on in the natural world this time of year. Today, we welcome back our friend biologist Joe McGee to the show to talk about the things he's seeing this time of year. Also, we'll talk about the upcoming Great Backyard Bird Count that happens in February. You can join the conversation this morning by giving us a phone call. The number is one mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Or email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Here's a reminder. If you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning, Libby. What uh, have you been noticing during these cold days?
2: Oh, there's a lot going on outside. And without the mosquitoes, thank goodness. <laughs> uh, had a great walk yesterday in the woods um, there in the Pearl River floodplain at the Fanny Cook Natural Area. So I hadn't been there for a while since I've been out of town. But a uh, wonderful time, and I know I saw a lot of things that Joe's probably going to talk about later, including the chorus frogs. And I thought about you, Kevin, because I think that's one of the ones you've learned yes. to sound to. And uh, there were several <laughs> colonies going strong. This was probably, I guess, close to noon by the time they really kicked in. Singing loudly, but and it's a, just another reminder that these amphibians are not—maybe they're not as active in the really hot weather as they are in this nice, cool weather. They like the winter time. And then uh, one of the things that I've enjoyed for the last couple of weeks that I uh, wanted to encourage our listeners to maybe participate in too is going outside. Uh, Bundle up a little. Go outside just a little after dark. Maybe around 7 o'clock is when mine are real active. But that's hearing the great horned owls. And um, great horned owls are really cool animals anyway in lots of ways. But um, particularly this time of year, they're what you're going to hear. They're, gosh, I think probably the bird that nests the very earliest in Mississippi. uh, Eagles are pretty early nesters too. But uh, great horn owls certainly get a jump on things and start nesting the male they're called the hootie owl of course that's kind of the traditional <laughs> hooty owl and the male's call is going to be a low register hoot and um, you know with the drawn out hoots I don't I don't want to embarrass myself on the radio and try to do that, but some people, we've had some guests that were really good at it, haven't we? So anyway, those hoots, you can listen for that, and uh, the female's a little bit higher hoot. I think it is possible, sometimes people seem to confuse her with a barred owl, so you need to maybe listen online to the two. The barred owl is usually that, who cooks for you, kind of a cadence, but in... Uh, she then the female also has a when she is um ready to court she has kind of a strange bark that sounds very mammalian more like a mammal than a a bird to me but it's a, a strange little kind of a croaking bark like a small dog might make and uh that's when the male i guess goes to look for so and then after the young are born so the the, um, the breeding and nesting time is going to go on. Um, oh gosh, you know maybe the end of December, January, February in Mississippi, and then late February, March, they're going to be some babies, and they're little puff balls. I mean, beautiful little balls. Uh, the remember the great horned owl is called the great horned owl because he has those ear tufts. But when the babies first start branching, going out. Popping out of the nest and hopping around the branches, you you won't see those ears on them. So don't be fooled and think that's another species of owl. Those babies are great horned owls. They just don't have their tufts yet. But uh, oh, another interesting thing about great horned owls that I recall is reading that you know, unfortunately, we've heard about so many populations of birds that are on the decline, and birds. In, I think in general terms have a pretty hard time adjusting to to all the things that humans do to change habitats Great horned owls are very resilient and their numbers actually have been increasing as other bird populations seem to decrease uh, we think partly because they they're so successful living in different habitats they're found all over the country all the way up to the Arctic Circle they're they're in Alaska in you know very upper parts of Canada, and they uh, and, uh, they can just eat anything. I mean, they can eat carrion, they prefer rabbit, that's their, you know, they like rabbits and squirrels and rats, so that's good for us, that they like to eat rats. But they will eat insects, any larger insect they'll grab, uh, frogs, snakes, and they're not above getting a little roadkill if, if they need to do that. And great big birds. It's amazing if you really see one up close. They're they're bigger than a, a red-tailed hog, way more. And um, anyway, it's a, it's a bird worth listening for. And then when you've heard them, uh, it'd be worth the effort to start looking for where you might find them. And they're not... It's not uncommon to see them during the day and even hunting during the day.
1: This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. As usual, Dr. Troy Major is with us this morning. Dr. Major got a couple of emails here for you. This first one says, uh, recently adopted a dog from the pound. She's a mixed breed but definitely has some hound in her. She seems to have a body odor. I've heard that some dogs just naturally have a strong smell. How often can I bathe her?
3: It's a great question, and a lot of the hounds do have... uh some different body odor than some of the other dogs i would say limit that to at the most every two weeks as far as about but you, any more than that uh, you start to uh, you know dry the skin out and cause some issues there
1: all right this one here says i have a cat sheba who's quite mean she often will rub up against me and act like she wants to be petted but when i do so she will immediately attack me I don't understand why. Additionally, when I'm sleeping, she'll attack me if my arm is hanging off the bed. Is this a way of her playing and showing affection, or am I neglecting her in some way?
3: Another great question. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that uh, I see is where cats are raised as kittens with no siblings, maybe nursed on a bottle. Uh, They don't learn the fact that, hey, if I bite somebody, uh, I'm going to get bitten back. Uh, you've seen kittens tussle with each other, and I would say that probably this, not knowing the background of this cat, uh, certainly it could be that, uh, and this is very difficult to, to correct because, uh, I saw a cat, uh, yesterday that, uh, they had gotten the cat from between the wall, it had fallen in the wall as a kitten, uh, between the, uh, masonite or whatever type boars that were there they raised it on the bottle and this cat gets along fair with them but any stranger it will attack so that may be the history on this kitten or the cat that's causing this biting incidentally uh on the great horned Isles they love skunks too oh yes uh, they, yeah. they, <laughs> I've heard they, that. that's that's one of their favorite uh, Favorite foods, uh, the skunks. You know, that
2: out. we had a rehabber tell us that she had never um, worked on a skunk that didn't—I mean, never worked on a great horned that didn't smell of a little skunk. <laughs> right. So I imagine <laughs> that's a lingering odor for them, and they must not mind it.
3: And it may be a way—a tip-off that there's a nest close by as well, just uh, ah. the, uh, the odor uh, from from the skunks.
2: Okay, that's yeah. I'll have to use that.
1: Thanks. You're back to the uh, the cat issue. I've found that you know cats like getting their head scratched or petting or that sort of thing. But to me, I've noticed that when they have had enough, they've had enough, and you really, uh, as you get to know a cat, need to kind of recognize. How far you can push it because I, you know, my brother's cat especially he'll let you, you know, pay attention to him. But like I said, when he's through with it, uh, if you keep on scratching or whatever, he's liable to you know paw you or that sort of thing. So right. um, it might be a matter of just getting to know this cat a little bit better. And uh, the same thing about attacking. I know that my cat. Sometimes will attack my feet in the bed, you know um and sometimes it's like okay if they if I were moving around, I could see that, but I'm just laying here still, but all of a sudden you know he'll pounce on there, so I think right. that's kind of just their their nature in in some respects
3: it is, and uh try not to encourage that I realize that when you're in bed, got your feet covered up, you're not encouraging it, <laughs> but uh some some of the cats uh really uh you know are very sensitive about certain parts of their body as well and a lot of male cats if you pet them on the back half of their body they really resent that so most cats like a pet on the head uh maybe rub their neck but if they'll let you know when they're tired of you fooling <laughs> with them.
1: that's that's true uh, it is time for our first break of the hour. When we get back, we'll talk with our good friend of the show, biologist Joe McGee. Dr. Major and Libby, always here for uh, creature questions and wildlife observations. Call in with questions and comments. Our phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. We're back on Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join our conversation today with a question or comment, you can call us at 1 877 MPB Ring. It's 1 877 672 7464. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Our guest for today is our friend biologist Joe McGee. Good morning, Joe. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine. Uh, before we hop into things, I think there's a call on the line that I think you and Libby might have some insight uh, to, so it's our friend Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. You're on the air with us.
4: Good morning. I'd like to ask um, what's happened to all the birds? I-, I know that Rachel Carson years ago wrote a book called Silent Spring. <laughs> I just wonder, uh, is, are the, is the bird population down so far that that they're never coming back? Because I- I've got some wild bullish vines out back of the house, and there used to be all kinds of birds that would flock there to eat those Wild grapes, and this year I haven't seen a bird. Heard a bird. I know the freezing weather's probably got them, you know, stopped for a while or something. But what happened to the birds, Joe?
1: You know, what What are your thoughts?
4: Well, it's it's risky to
0: uh, speculate too much about you know bird populations because they naturally do ebb and flow. But there seems to be a consensus among a, a number of conservation organizations, including the National Audubon Society, and cornell laboratory of ornithology that bird some bird populations are in decline and i've noticed something unusual around my house this year i have not seen a single yellow rumped warbler this is our most common warbler in the winter time they're usually easy to see and i usually have them now i'm not in a panic about yellow rumped warblers but something for some reason they're not here at, at my house. I'm sure other people are seeing them. So that sort of thing can happen. Uh,
2: I don't have my yellow rum twerblers this year either, and I've thought, I, you know, maybe I haven't spent enough time outside looking for them, but if you're not seeing them. But I'm blaming that very cold snap in February. I know it killed a lot of stuff last year. Yes. You know, yeah. I told you about my Phoebes. I'm just still sick about that. But, yes, I, you yeah. know, it, I I do think that there's a good chance those things will come back for us. And like you say, it ebbs and flows year by year, but the general tendency for, I would say, even the majority, I think I've read for about 50% of species, the general tendency is kind of a downward. That's right. It's not Uh, a steep decline, but there is a decline.
0: Enough to be concerned about it, because we have a lot of data now. Breeding bird surveys have been going on for years, and the Christmas bird counts, and the great backyard bird counts. Anyway, there's a couple other species I'm not seeing that I usually have. Uh, There's one called a blue-headed vireo. It's the only vireo we have in winter, and I haven't seen any of them in my yard. And they they don't occur in the numbers that the uh, yellow-rumped warblers do, but they occur, you know, two or three in the yard usually. I haven't had any of those. Uh, I see the occasional Phoebe, but not in my yard. And I remember, you, Libby, you mentioned uh, the bluebird, finding a lot of bluebird, deceased bluebirds last year. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I think what happens when we have uh, freezing rain, you know, an ice, essentially an ice storm, their food gets covered up and they can't access it. Yeah. and they they starve to death or uh they you know their heater their heater goes off so to speak because they keep themselves warm by constantly feeding yeah and so that that may be an explanation for some of the winter birds that we're not seeing but yeah. to answer sue's question i some of the summer birds are, are in decline as well uh, the birds can't change you know they're used to going to certain places in, at various times of the year and if if things change there's nothing they can do about it
2: but you know what on a positive note i think really there are a few things that she might be able to do that we can all do and that's take a look at our habitat and see what we've got growing she may want to bring in some native plants that that um uh, provide more food than is there it's quite possible that not too far from her house there have been some landscape changes where plants have been taken out, and she, you know, she can replace those and make her place more of a haven for them. Mm-hmm. But um, I think using the bird feeders, we have to be very intelligent how we use that and careful, make sure they're clean and spread out and not causing yeah. disease. Clean
0: but, is really important on the yeah. bird feeders.
2: But bringing in those native plants can make a big difference. And um, uh, being careful what you use in your yard, what kind of poisons you use. That's right, yeah. And uh, uh, having water features can help.
0: Especially, sometimes we forget that the birds do need water in the wintertime. And it's not a big issue in the south, but the water can freeze over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can't access it. So, uh when we have weather like we're having now, actually it wasn't all that cold here this morning. I think it was about thirty degrees outside when I checked yeah. this morning. But, uh, so the ice is already melted. But sometimes it freezes. The bird bath freezes solid, and I have to break the ice and, and provide some water for them. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very important.
2: Yeah, and then last February it certainly was an issue, and that that may have been part of the contributing factor to those birds that died—that they were having a hard time accessing water.
0: That's right. Yeah, it was rough on them. It's just rough. Sometimes they themselves become coated with ice. Uh, they're out, you know. They're out in the elements, and that's where habitat would come in. These little yellow rumped warblers like to find really thick vegetation to roost in. Yeah. There's a magnolia tree in my yard, a big old magnolia tree, and that's where I used to always see them go late in the day, around you know, just before sunset, or maybe mm-hmm. an hour before sunset. The yellow rumped warblers would flock to that magnolia tree, and that's where they roosted. And that provides a lot of um, covering, you know, if we have precipitation.
2: And there seem to always be those little bugs in the winter in a magnolia Mm -hmm. tree. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right, Sue,
1: we appreciate your calling in this morning. This is Creature Comfort, so we're going to be visiting this hour with one of our good friends to the program, uh, biologist Joe McGee. So, Joe, uh, let's talk about some of the birds you're seeing this winter, maybe the familiar birds that some people might be uh, familiar with.
0: Yeah, I uh, I feed the birds, as, as a lot of bird lovers do, and I'm seeing the usual suspects coming to my feeders. I have uh, probably 30 or so American goldfinches. I have a pair of tufted titmice coming. I have several Carolina chickadees. These are all good feeder birds. I have... Uh, a pair of red-bellied woodpeckers that come and take the black oil sunflower seeds. I even have some crows. I'm uh, very tolerant of crows. A lot of people are not, but, you know, they they can be a pest. But I have about half a dozen that come, and I put out some food for them on the driveway, and they are very wary. They know I'm going to put it out. I scatter some food for them, then I go back inside, and almost instantly I can look out the window, and there they are. Uh, feeding on the driveway. I have morning doves. I don't know if I mentioned it. I have morning doves coming uh, to my feeders. Red-winged blackbirds, I have probably about 35 red-winged blackbirds coming, uh, and they always seem to have a hearty appetite. I have probably one pair, maybe two pairs of Carolina wrens coming to my suet feeders, and they'll also pick around in the seeds, getting crumbs that other birds have left. But I have another wren I'd like to mention, it's not coming to my feeders, but uh, I have a, at least three, maybe more, sedge wrens out behind my house. Now, this is not a feeder bird, it's, but it is a wren. And the reason they're the favorite habitat of sedge wrens is, is a wet field or uh, a wet grassland, the edge of a marsh. And behind my house, it's very, very wet right now. It's been wet for over a year because we've had excessive rainfall, although the rainfall is a little bit below normal this jan- so far this January. But the hay could not be cut in this area last summer because it was so wet. And the side effect of that is I now have good sedgerin habitat. I wouldn't wish sedgerin habitat on anyone, but I've got it now. Uh, and I can go out and make the, the – I can imitate the sedgerins pretty well. They go two sharp chip notes. Or alarm calls and eventually they'll flop they're very secretive very, uh, they skulk through the tall grass if listeners know what broom sedge is that's kind of what I have growing out the broom sedge and some other grasses so I've got good habitat for sedge wrens although I didn't exactly plan on it
1: <laughs> uh, Joe you mentioned crows and I think <clears throat> we have a caller Francis from Natchez that wants to talk about crows good morning Francis you're on the air with us
5: Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I've uh, <clears throat> been hunting and fishing all my life, over 50 years, and I don't ask the younger people because they haven't been around a couple far enough to know where the handle is. But uh, one of my friends is 92, and I asked him, have, have you ever seen a crow's net? I asked the older people this question. No one has never, ever seen a crow's net. And the second question is, <laughs> According to the biologists of the state of Mississippi there are no wolves in the state of Mississippi Well, I was out squirrel hunting one day And I looked in this field and I said what in the world is this little calf doing out there by itself? And lo and behold, it was a big dog And my question is since there are uh, no wolves in the state if I had to kill the, uh, this dog Which I think was a wolf, would I have been in trouble? And my third question I got is I got feeders out for the birds. I cleaned it, uh, and I put the feed in it, but the birds aren't coming around.
1: All right, let's uh, take those in order. First, uh, the crows. Joe, are, are crows secretive where their nests are?
0: They certainly are. I've only seen a couple of crows nest in my life. Uh, I haven't really put forth the effort to see where they nest. You know, if I would watch the crows during the nesting season and be persistent about it. I could probably see where they're going, but they are definitely secret. They, they, they're smart birds. They, at least they have a reputation for being smart, intelligent birds. Uh, so it's not surprising that few people have seen crows nests. I have seen a couple and they become very, very upset if you approach it. Uh, they're very uh, protective of their nest. So that's, that's that question. Then there was one about wolves. Right. Uh, I'm not necessarily the person to answer a question about wolves, but I do know a little bit about them. Pro- I, I doubt that, what, that the animal that he saw was a wolf. It was probably a coyote or a dog-coyote hybrid, I'm, but I'm not sure. I'm not the, really qualified to talk about wolves. The Southeast had a, uh, a native wolf years ago. It was called a red wolf. That's the, the wolf that's native to the southeastern United States, and it's a highly endangered species, and they're, supposedly there's none in the wild now anywhere except where they've been reintroduced, I believe, in North Carolina, at a wildlife refuge in North Carolina. Uh, and those are not doing so well because the locals still shoot them and trap them and you know don't care for them. So wolves, better, better get another expert on wolves. <laughs> I really don't think we have any in Mississippi.
1: Libby, do you have any thoughts? Yeah,
2: I think you're probably right. And um, uh, Dana Morin was here, remember, on the radio show not too long ago, and she has worked with wolves. And um, she does not think we have any more red wolves in the state. And I would never encourage you to shoot that animal just, you know, for lots of reasons. If it, if it was a wolf, I would hate for it to be dead. If it was a, a coyote, they're actually perform a really good task in the environment of taking things out and it could have been somebody's dog and that would have been a terrible mistake Uh, but I don't think if you happen to shoot something that you think is a wolf, you know you would not be arrested because the official stance is that it's they're not here but if you shot something and you believed it to be a wolf, I would encourage you to show it to your conservation officer
1: and then uh, finally Joe, if uh, a feeder is well maintained but birds aren't coming to it, any t- tips or hints to try to get to attract some birds?
0: That's a tough one because it sounds as though the the caller is doing the right things. Now, uh many of our feeder birds like black oil sunflower seeds, but that's not the only thing they eat. But that's a good one to put out for the for the goldfinches, cardinals, uh any of our native sparrows, but there's something else they really like that will bring them in, and I find that this is better, for, say, for the white-throated sparrows and the chipping sparrows than the sunflower seeds, and that's white prozo millet. It's, it's uh, and you can get this at the box stores. It comes in, a, it'll be mixed with other things, but the, the white prozo millet is what they really go for. I buy something called uh, finch food, because it doesn't have the red millet in there that nothing seems to eat. I guess grackles would eat it but uh it always gets left over but i don't know it sounds like he's doing the right thing he said the feeders were clean that's important i had a real problem last year during the ice storm i i was just inundated with birds i probably had 200 goldfinches coming Mm -hmm. about 50 purple finches i haven't seen any purple finches this this winter season siskins it was just too many for the feeders that i had i fed i scattered food out on the driveway but i really had too many feeders too many Feeder birds, or birds coming to the too too to few feeders, so that can be a problem. But it sounds as though the caller is doing everything right. Now, the, I've had an unusual situation with uh, Niger, you know, the black Niger seed that, that goldfinches just relish. They're expensive; they're a little bit pricey, and they stopped eating them last year. And I just finally decided that maybe the seed that I'd recently bought them, I thought maybe they had sat in somebody's warehouse too long. And it had gone stale. But I bought some. I said I wasn't going to buy any more, but then I did buy some just recently. And filled the feeders with the fresh Niger seed. And there's, they're still not coming to it very much. I don't. Want, that's something I don't understand.
2: Uh, We've had that but, same problem. Paul did, I think it was the year before last, though. He brought what he thought were the right Niger seeds, and they did not get eaten. And we, we thought they maybe they had gone rancid or something, because they have yes, a lot I, of oil I, in them.
0: Yeah, I thought maybe, um, in my case, that they had, like I say, they had sat in somebody's warehouse too long and mm-hmm. went rancid. It's, that's very unusual. You can't keep a feeder full of niger seed if uh, the goldfinches would. And siskins, I have not seen any siskins this winter season either. But that's because probably because we're here in Mississippi we haven't had the really, really cold weather. I'm not sure, but uh, it, I don't know. I, I, uh, I sympathize with the caller. He sounds as though he's doing everything right. Uh, he might try putting some seed on, on a stone or on his if he has a paved driveway because uh, a lot of birds like to feed on the ground.
1: This is uh, Creature Comforts, and it's time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with our guest, Joe McGee. Also, Dr. Major's still here, ready for any pet questions that you might have. So call in with questions and comments. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. It's Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and our guest for this hour is biologist Joe McGee. Uh, so, Joe, we want to talk about the uh, Great Backyard Bird Count, but first we've got another caller on the line, so we say good morning to Rachel in Eupora. Good morning, Rachel. Go ahead. It's your turn.
4: Good morning. Uh, I would love to hear somebody talk about the screech owl. In Mississippi, in particular, there, and I would like to know about their size uh, and and weight, and uh, maybe how many there are in Mississippi, and also would love to hear somebody talk about what this owl sounds like. I think I heard one one time, and it was not a screech.
2: You're right, it is very different, and uh, they're great little birds, and they do occur in mississippi i don't think anybody's ever done a census count to get a a definite count joe and i it's funny you bring that up because um our friend mary stevens sent us a wonderful photograph that bill stribbling her husband had just taken in their yard and we both popped up in both of our phones last night and it was just an incredible picture of a wonderful little screech out uh I think they still have one at the science museum as an education animal. They usually do, and so if you're in the Jackson area, you could go and see one in person. Call and they'll give you an appointment to go see that little screech owl if you want to. But um, I think that um, I think we can play a song, can't we?
1: Yeah, I think Java, you found something, did not you? So let's uh, let's hear. There you go. <laughs> uh Joe, what can you tell us about screech owls?
0: Yeah, that, Well, first of all, I'd like to uh, compliment Java on bringing that. That's that's what you that's one of the sounds you'll hear when you hear a screech owl. They are as as Libby mentioned, there probably has not been uh, a detailed study of screech owls or their numbers, the numbers of screech owls in Mississippi, but I think they are Common, fairly common. And by common, I don't mean they occur in flocks. Obviously, they're up the food chain, and the higher you get in the food chain, the less likely something is to flock, it seems. They probably have the frequency of occurrence that uh, American kestrels have. They're widespread. They occur in all kinds of habitats, provided great horned owls and barred owls are not around. Great horned owls and barred owls will prey on screech owls. So, you, if you have the larger owls, you may not have screech owls.
2: Uh, oh, and then I, I just I looked up in the book, Joe. They're only six ounces—a little tiny guy, hmm. about eight eight inches tall, and about six ounces is all he weighs. Yeah. So, you can see if he's flying at night is the same time a great horned owl is flying. He can't resist that i'm sure it's
0: yeah it's our small it's the smallest owl that occurs in mississippi i was going to mention a few years ago i did uh amphibian surveys on a on a uh, previously laid out route and i would often hear screech owls you, they, they are very nocturnal you don't hear that i've heard one once calling in the daytime giving that call that java just played in the daytime they are really a nocturnal owl you the, the, the great horned owls and barred owls you can hear occasionally in the daytime, especially on an uh, overcast day. Another thing about screech owls that's interesting is uh, they are cavity nesters. And you can f- go online and find the uh, dimensions for a screech owl nest box and install one. I put one up one time in Jackson at, at some relatives living in West Jackson. I had. In the summer, I had was house sitting for these folks and had heard screech owls and saw them ra- uh, raising a family. And I knew they were cavity nesters, so I put a nest box up for them. And sure enough, uh, for several years, they had screech owls coming to this nest box. I believe the photograph that Mary Stripling posted on this bird was of one roosting in a nest box.
2: Yes,
1: uh, it was. Yeah. All right,
0: Really to- interesting little birds. Very popular with with owl lovers.
2: Yeah. Check with the museum and, and see if you can go by and see one, Rachel.
1: Thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Our guest today, biologist Joe McGee. So Joe, the uh, great backyard bird count is coming up in uh, mid to late February. If you could cor- kind of remind us of, of what a bird count is and, and what the why they have them. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's one way to keep tabs on the numbers of birds, which we were talking about uh, previously. Uh, The Great Backyard Bird Count is perhaps the easiest one to do. It's easier than a Christmas bird count or a breeding bird survey in that you can just step outside and count the birds in your backyard, literally as the name suggests. Or you can go anywhere, go to a park or a natural area that's nearby. Uh, The dates this year are February 18th through the 21st. You can count on any of any or all of those days if you want to, and you can count as long as you want to. I believe Audubon and Cornell recommend that you count for at least 15 minutes, you know, to get a, an idea. And probably a half hour would be better, and a whole hour would really be better. And you could count in the morning and then again at night, and each of those would be a separate count. You just literally go out and identify the bird you're seeing and uh, keep a tally of it, and then you... Uh, report your results online there's you go online to uh, birdcount.org and there's a form you can fill out it's all very very easy it's the easiest count i can think of and it's a
2: great count to do with families it's something yeah. the kids can easily do Yeah. if you don't have a bird book you can pull pull something up online and identify what you're seeing if you have any questions about what you're seeing
0: That's right. This this website that I mention almost every time is allaboutbirds.org. That's the Cornell website. It's really good. You just type in the bird species uh, that you want identified, and it pops up. Or you can type in the description and uh, suggestions of what you've seen will pop up.
1: And yeah, I think that uh, either when you're doing it on your own or with your family, I think the idea of you know having the the bird book and. and you're Doing the detective work to try to figure out what you're seeing that might be kind of fun. So, again, if you, you are are interested, it's uh, from February 18th to the 21st, and I think you could probably find more information about it at birdcount.org or just type in Great Backyard Bird Count uh, in a search engine, and you'll get some right. uh, information. Back to the phone <laughs> lines we go. Sorry, Joe, go ahead.
0: Uh, did you say February 13th? Or?
1: I'm sorry. It's 18th through the 21st. My bad. So, right. yeah, February yes. 18th uh, through the 21st. Yes. We've got exactly. uh, Kathy and Brandon is up next. Good morning, Kathy. You're on the air with us. Hi, Kathy. Are you with us?
4: Yes. Hey, can you hear me? Sure. Go ahead. Um, my, my question is, is it time to put out the finch feeders?
0: Yes with a, with an exclamation point. <laughs>
4: oh <laughs> yeah. good.
0: Yeah, I good. I, have I to of to I began to see goldfinches after right after Christmas. Just two or three showed up and they'll eat the sunflower seeds. And then I uh, recently put up some a uh, niger feeder for them. But yeah, I, goldfinches are here now.
4: Okay, I'll get them out. Thank you.
1: <laughs> yes. Thanks for calling in today, Kathy. Uh, let's uh, stay on the phone lines. It's Kathleen from Osaka is up next. Good morning, Kathleen.
4: I'm beginning to think I've, I'm beginning to think I've got uh, what they call snake bit. Are y'all <laughs> hearing me? Because it's all staticky. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, this last week, I have come to the conclusion that I definitely have hogs, wild hogs. Coming on my property. And night before last, they were right at my back door. They have nudged up and dug uh, about an area about uh, 75 by 150 feet. And out in my little round field where I wanted to put a garden in, um, it's about maybe a quarter or an eighth of an acre is, as they say, toe up. So I don't know how to keep them out. I was thinking about putting a fence in, but I'd have to go maybe cinder blocks, which is expensive. And uh, how high do you have to go to keep them out?
0: Uh, Kathleen, you probably need to contact the Department of Wildlife, Futures, and Parks. They have people who, I think I can say to say specialize in dealing with wild hogs. It's a real issue now all over the state. This is a non This is a real good example of what happens when a non-native species goes wild, or you know, becomes too prolific. Uh, you're going to need some help with this. They, uh, there are people with wildlife futures and parks who, who trap the hogs. That's one thing they can do. It, and once again, this is an area that I, I mean, I've, I've seen them trapped and seen the traps and uh, and so forth. But I'm not an expert, at, you know, on Wild hog removal or dealing with them does does that does that help you at all with what I just said?
4: Well, it just confirms what I gotta do. Uh, I know it's going to be an ongoing problem. One of the guys asked me, well, "Do you have a gun?" I said, "Well, yeah." He said, "Well, get out there and shoot them." I said, "I'm only five three, and I I don't think I weigh 150, but." Uh, this would be very difficult for me to do, r- walking or running with a cane yes. and all like that. Yeah, yeah. you don't. Yeah, yeah, you don't
2: need to tackle this yourself because it's at and night the, yeah. and they're big and strong. And the traps that you have to trap them in are have to be big, tough traps. And if you did trap one, you don't want to have to deal with it. Yeah, you got to be yeah. able to.
0: This, this is a major yeah. thing. You will need some help with this. I might mention something. Uh, I was checking some pools I know about yesterday for salamander eggs. Normally these pools are clean, uh, like tea. You know, they're transparent. And one of them is very muddy, and I, don't, I didn't see any tracks around it, but I wondered if wild hogs had muddied that up. So I, I, I don't know why it was so muddy, but, but the, wild hogs are a real problem. They impact our, a lot of our native wildlife. Uh, and you need to try to get some help from the Department of Wildlife, Fishers, and Parks on this.
1: Yeah, Kathleen, this is definitely something that is on their radar. So I think if you call uh, the folks at uh, Wildlife, uh, they will be able to help you uh, because this is – we've actually talked about this on the show before, but this is a real problem. They are dangerous animals, and so I think you do need to get some professional help uh, with that problem. It is time for the last break of the hour. When we get back, we'll spend a few minutes talking about amphibians, some of the frogs that you might be seeing this time of year with our guest Joe McGee time to work in a question or two at one mpb ring It's 1-877-672-7464. Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts, You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield, and our guest today is biologist Joe McGee. So, Joe, we got uh, probably five or six minutes left so we could touch on uh, frogs. What uh, types of frogs and uh, maybe toads are active in this early part of the year?
0: Yeah, this is the time of year when the amphibian breeding season begins, at least for some species. Not toads. I, uh, I don't expect... Well, it's still a few weeks away before toads would start breeding. American toads, uncommon in Mississippi, would, would probably be breeding, I'm guessing, in the next three or four weeks, maybe, two to four weeks, perhaps. But frogs, yes. I have an interesting story to relate. The, the only frog that I usually hear around my house this time of year is the spring peeper. Traditionally, that's the one I hear, and they're not right in the yard. They're ponds to my... West and ponds to my east, or a pond to my east, and and I hear them when they start singing. Uh, but this year, I've heard a population of spring peepers calling right across the road. I live on a busy road, right across the road from me. I can't, I wouldn't even want them necessarily to access them, but it's really interesting that I can hear them so close, and in among them is uh, two or three chorus frogs. That's a, a species I've never heard. Around my house until last spring, I was out looking. In March, I was living can relate to this. I was looking for the the first fireflies of the season, the the uh, treetop flashers. And while I was out looking for those, I heard a chorus frog, and I was you know, delighted to hear that. But the season was winding down for them, or it does wind down as spring ends. Uh, but this year, I've got chorus frogs and spring peepers. are right I don't have to go I don't have to go anywhere to hear them. They're just right here. But when I do drive to some locations, I know I uh, hear loud multi-voice choruses of of, uh, the chorus frogs, and spring peepers in my neck of the woods, anyway, east Mississippi, central Mississippi, they are virtually ubiquitous on mild, wet nights. Now, we won't hear very many tonight. The peepers might call right around sunset and call until it just gets too cold for them, but first part of next week i think it's going to be warmer and rainy and that'd be a good night to listen for spring peepers and to listen for coarse frogs and even southern leopard frogs those are the three most easily observed frogs or, or most easily heard frogs uh, in mississippi this time of year
2: yeah we heard chorus frogs yesterday on the pearl river right in the middle of the day even
0: yes they 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 are one that will yeah. call in the daytime for sure yeah i'm glad you mentioned that uh, when you were talking about them earlier at the fanny cook natural area
2: mm-hmm.
0: you heard them in you heard them in the daytime right yes
2: yep that was it right at noon
0: yeah that's a point i wanted to, to mention because uh some folks maybe want to watch tv at night <laughs> although i can't imagine that mm-hmm. but, uh, <laughs> uh but yeah you could hear the chorus frogs uh calling uh not every day i doubt you'd hear them today it's kind of cold but i don't know how it's going to warm up later and not be so cold tonight so maybe you may be able to hear them even today.
2: Yeah, because it was it, it was pretty cold out there yesterday. Yeah. But that's yeah. what we thought. Okay, they've waited till the heat of the day to call. Yeah. Which was and still I, only maybe 36, 38, I think. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So Joe, let's uh, wrap things up by talking about your recent salamander sightings.
0: Uh, yeah, and of course, Tom Mann is the salamander <laughs> Person to go to a salamander expert, but I but I have an interest in them, uh, and I went out uh, Thanksgiving night. If you recall, Thanksgiving was fairly warm for you know for that for for November, and it was raining. And I found a species that had not been documented in Newton County before. It's called the mole salamander, and I found another one, another mole salamander uh, recently. Uh, I don't remember the date right now, but. Uh, but in January, so that's kind of exciting. I also have found the spotted salamanders, which uh, Tom helps rescue on the Natchez Trace this time of year, and uh, marble salamanders. Marble salamanders; those are the beautiful black and white ones that um, that you can find. They're the they're the salamander that I grew up with. You might say the, they were the first one, salamander I knew anything about. Uh, but you, salamanders, are, of course, are silent. They're not like a frog, so you're going to have to be a little bit proactive and by proactive I mean watch what's in the road in front of you when you're driving on a rainy night they are they're no match for a uh, a tire <laughs> uh,
1: what uh what are amphibians uh, eating this time of year when it when it's so cold out uh,
0: you know no matter how cold it gets there are invertebrates around when i'm out listening go to a, say a marshy area to listen for and hopefully photograph some frogs inevitably i get in by I am, I'm not necessarily bitten by but I get approached by one or two mosquitoes hmm. so insects and other invertebrates are around uh, they're less noticeable, less of a problem for us humans this time of year but they do find uh, food you know, on the ground in the leaf litter uh, there's, there's a good bit for them to eat if the habitat is reasonably intact
1: we're about out of time. Just a, a time to remind folks about the great backyard bird count that we talked about earlier in the hour. It is February 18th through the 21st this year would be a great way to, for you and maybe your family to get out and enjoy nature and help out on this a citizen science project uh, for more information and to report things if you do participate in the bird count you can go to birdcount.org or as i suggested earlier uh, just type in great backyard bird count in any sort of search engine and you'll get what you're looking for i'm sure creature comforts is a production of mississippi public Bro- oh wait uh, Libby real quick we there's something that we'll put on people's radars that's coming up in February
2: Arbor Day at the Natural Science Museum Friday February the 11th from 10 till till noon 12:30 actually
1: All right, and as I said, we'll be able to talk about that more, but it's at least on uh, uh, people know about it now. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners. If you want to hear today's show or previous show, you can find it at mpbonline.org slash Creature Comforts or subscribe to Creature Comforts podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Our show was produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Joe McGee, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.